Welcome to Under the Hood, a podcast by Le Studio, where we chat about the ins and outs of entrepreneurship with real-life innovators. Hello, everyone. I am Karine Sarkisian. In this episode, we're chatting with a very good friend and wonderful person, Ibrahim Al Husseini. Ibrahim Al Husseini is founder and managing partner at Full Cycle. Ibrahim is a venture capitalist and philanthropist dedicated to advancing social change globally. He has spent much of his career as a sustainability-focused entrepreneur. He has also spent much of his career helping angel investors find clean technology and natural resource-related investments. Ibrahim was an early investor in Tesla, Infinera, Bloom Energy, and Uber Technologies, as well as Inspiration Inc., Devoted Health, WePower, Cadence Health, Thrive Market, and Clean Choice Energy. Through this work, Ibrahim has developed an extensive network of industry leaders, investors, and entrepreneurs across the sustainability space. Recognizing the urgent need for waste solutions, Ibrahim founded Full Cycle Energy in 2013 to invest in early-stage technologies that can revolutionize our relationship with waste while addressing the global need for low-carbon energy. In 2020, Full Cycle Partners was launched to provide expansion capital for accelerating the commercial deployment of the next gigaton-scale climate technologies. Ibrahim is also the founder and managing partner of Hassani Group LLC, a firm dedicated to facilitating financing, and guiding ventures that embrace social enhancement and ecological sustainability. He also sits on the board of the Rainforest Action Network, the Biomimicry Institute, and the Global Partnership for Women and Girls. I'm so excited to be able to chat with you today, Ibrahim. I mean, you're definitely one of the most special people I know, I would say, and I describe you as a super kind, just passionate and caring person, and both really as a very good friend, as an investor. But I'm also really excited to chat with you because you have some of the most unique experiences just across the board. I mean, you've grown up in the Middle East, not you've lived in multiple places, and you just continue to inspire so much with the work that you do and speaking about your passions and the planet and the environment. So I'm really, really, really excited to share some of these insights and learn more from you today with our listeners and, and just, I think we'll just jump right in. But First, uh, we always ask something a little bit personal to get started, something kind of random, but tell us about something that you're really proud of that has really nothing to do with work. That's a great question. And by the way, I'm super excited to be here with you too, because, you know, uh, I think the world of you and when you asked me to do this, I was thrilled. So this is so neat for me to just even get this half hour with you and just visit. It's uh, nice to have this conversation just because it's with you. So something I'm proud of that is not related to work. My ego is going to answer today, and that's going to say is getting in shape. I am turning 50 this year, and I'm in the best shape I've ever been. And I love that. I love that we live in a time where we can do that, where we get the wisdom of experience and of decades of living in this world and maturing emotionally, mentally, experientially. And we get to maintain our physicality and enjoy best of both worlds, the, the wisdom and the vitality and vigor and, and youth. So it's good to be alive in this time. You know, you and I have talked about, about like health stuff and, and just kind of like going through functional medicine approaches and different things. And I agree with you. I mean, there's like, you know, there's so much research about like your biological age versus what your body's actual age is. So it's amazing to hear that and 
I can see it even in your energy. So that's really wonderful. So I definitely want to chat more about what you're doing now with Full Cycle and all the amazing work you guys are doing. But first, Brahim, I think it's helpful if you could share more about your background as in your first exposures, maybe to entrepreneurship. Maybe you can speak about how you leverage capital, maybe as an immigrant, adjusting to a new country, the US, and then kind of your journey from that would be amazing to hear. Yeah, sure. So I moved here originally to attend college and because the U.S. Uh, is known worldwide for having the best universities in the world. And my parents were generous enough to tighten their belt for the sake of their kids and send them to get a great education. Uh, I ended up disappointing them and dropping out of college after they sent me to college to start my first business in my college dorm room. And I actually did it because for two reasons. Number one, uh, I ended up in Washington state thinking I was originally going to Washington DC because I didn't know the difference. I just applied to the University of Washington, assuming that it was in the capital where all my buddies were. And I ended up on the wrong coast. And that was the beginning of the grunge scene. So I ended up with long hair and I didn't have the guts to go back home and have my parents see me with my long hair and my plaid shirt and my torn jeans. So my excuse was to start a business and the business that I started actually had nothing to do with leveraging capital or anything like that, because I knew nothing about raising capital. I didn't even understand what the word venture capital was as an industry or anything like that. I just knew that my dad gave me an emergency credit card and I had this junky car, used car that he was kind enough to buy for me to help set me up. And I used his emergency credit card and I sold the car. And that's how I started my first business. And I think I've made him proud because he was very resistant to all of this when I told him I wasn't going to go back to college between my sophomore and junior year. And my response was, are you next to a fax? For those of you who don't know what a fax is, it is a contraption that you know old people like me used to use to, to send documents across the world. And he was like, yes. So I sent him a copy of my bank account and he was like, what is happening? And I was like, my business is working. Give me a break. So he's like, okay. And the rest is history. So I am one of those people who is very grateful to have come to this country and very grateful to be welcomed in this country and was able to use this beautiful platform that is, you know, whatever some version of meritocracy that America provides and take advantage of it and build and be an example of the so-called American dream. And I'm grateful about that. And I'm very cognizant that this is a unique thing and is not as prevalent and as widespread as we talk about in the media and in social circles. So the statistics are tough, but I was one of the few examples that have benefited from the system. I'm very grateful to it and to this country. I knew some of that, but I didn't know the details of that. <laughs> it, was, it was ridiculous. Amazing. It was absolutely ridiculous. And I have photos. So. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the long hairs. Maybe we, the long hair photos. Maybe we, yeah. we can post that somewhere. Um, no, but I mean... I'll give you an exclusive. Nobody's ever posted those photos. <laughs> Only you will have access. <laughs> I love that. I mean, Ibrahim, was uh, business at all, I mean, what you started, was it at all tied to the environment and climate? Like, how did that 
career shift kind of happen? So I think, well, the career shift was basically because I was a scuba diver. So what happened is, is I was a serial serial successful entrepreneur. I had two, I built two companies and I exited them. I also have a career failure where I, you know, I got a little cocky, started a, a dot com and didn't actually built a successful company. There was just was nobody who's willing to fund a series B moving forward because the dot com crash back in 2000 made it almost impossible to raise around. I was willing to put up my pro rata, but all the other investors were like the Internet. That thing's a fad. We're not doubling down on that. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so I was a serial entrepreneur. I had rolled the proceeds from my entrepreneurial activity and started uh, into a family office, poached some of my financial advisors and have them work for me so we can start doing more general technology investments. And we focused a lot on the uh, rollout of fiber optics worldwide. So we were doubling down on fiber optics and fiber optic switches and all the software et cetera, that uh, b- was built around that. And we were, we timed it well, which was wonderful. And I went scuba diving back uh, home because my family has a house on the water in the Red Sea. And every time I'd go back, I'd notice a material degradation in the quality of the marine life as I remembered it from the year before. So over a decade, I noticed that it, my favorite scuba diving spot went from being completely lush and full of life to completely barren and full of plastic. And that broke my heart. And I just remember you know, walking out of the water with all my scuba gear on, thinking to myself, what is the point of everything that I'm doing? You know, here I am just like on this sprint to accumulate wealth on a planet that's literally dying. Because, you know, the, the oceans are kind of the canary in the coal mine, right? So they, whatever was happening beneath the surface of the water was eventually going to make its way above the surface of the water. And it's going to be part of our day-to-day experience. And, you know, here we are 22 years later after that memorable day. And we now have a much more sophisticated understanding of the impact of human civilization on the stability of our climate and on biodiversity and on all the chemical balances that make life even possible on this closed sphere in the middle of space. Yeah, same. I mean, I'm, from just diving over the years, I've definitely seen a lot of the changes. I, I can imagine that impact. But I mean, I guess it doesn't push everyone to just make a, such a big shift. Like, where did you even start with that? Like, how did you, you know, okay, the family office and then trying to figure these things out. But like, what were some of the things that guided you maybe along the way or was it just intuition? Like, you know? No. So it was the timing was good. This was back in 2001. Uh, this is Clean Tech 1.0 was beginning. So, as a part of the family office syndicates that were getting to look at some of the later stage venture deals, so whatever series E, D, F, pre IPO, et cetera, you know, in the mix of things starting to be this new category of clean tech opportunities. So, I called all of the brokers that were sending me deal flows and said, hey, from now on, I just want to focus on this category. And, you know, I'm not interested in monetizing attention and everything that was happening with social media. I was not interested in participating in ad tech to try to find clever ways to get under people's skin, to get them to buy more stuff they don't need and contribute to the problem so I can make a bigger paycheck. Like, that's not interesting to me. Like, I actually wanted to invest in the future I wanted to live into. Because like I don't understand 
like the world is made up of humans and it's made for humans, but we somehow forgot that. And we invest in things that are, you know, anti-human, anti-quality of life, because it somehow makes the individual investor their own little piece of uh, profit at the expense of everyone else and society at large. And because I was a Palestinian, the son of Palestinian immigrant refugees, I understand that everything's connected. There's no such thing as a vacuum, right? Like, you know, the my parents and grandparents are the victims of the victims of European history, right? So because of that, I ended up in a precarious geopolitical position as a guest in a host country and lost my homeland. What that means is something that had nothing to do with me that happened somewhere else entirely resulted in me growing up somewhere else, you know, trying to reconcile safety and security, you know, informing who I became as a human being. So this notion that somehow investing in something destructive because it benefits me, I knew would eventually work its way back to me one way or another. And it just like that was part of my formation. And the way I think about the world is nothing happens in a vacuum. Everything's connected. We are, you know, the, the like the butterfly effect is in full swing everywhere all the time. Yeah, 100 percent coming from somewhere where, you know, from similar history to some level, you know, it's ingrained in you. It's almost your duty to, you know, to move forward in a way that's a lot more responsible. I guess, Brahim, to that point, like I always say, you know, as investors, the things you decide to invest in, the things you decide to fund are the things that can move forward or, you know, like that can really change the way people do certain things. And in talking about, you know, the certain responsibilities, like how do you think investors and maybe like individuals should prioritize like long-term profit opportunities to protect and enhance the planet rather than degrade it? Like how does that kind of work? Is it like you create your own personal thesis and you kind of stick to that? Does it have to do, you know, we talk a lot with the studio about like measuring your impact and making sure and tracking and having your baseline and your targets, but how do you prioritize that? We actually had struggled with that question early on when we launched Full Cycle because the, you know, as an entrepreneur, what's important to an entrepreneur to some degree is efficacy, right? Like you have a problem and you're trying to solve the problem. You're not trying to appear as someone who's solving the problem and you're not trying to be known as someone who problem solves. You're actually trying to solve a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And those are distinctly three different sets of people. And so given that, like, okay, we have a warming cycle on Earth, global warming, right? And the way the warming cycle works is, you know, if you have a warm summer, that means that more glaciers recede. That means that more sea ice melts. So that means there's more Earth covered and there's more ocean uncovered, and those are darker than ice and snow, and and so they absorb the sun's radiation versus reflect it back into space. So that means that one warm summer generates a warmer summer the year after and the warmer summer the year after. So if you're investing in what we call climate tech, 
you have to have a thesis that front loads the impact and efficacy of the dollars you're collecting and deploying in such a way that you are slowing down the warming cycle and eventually halting it and eventually starting to reverse it. So we have to prioritize that. And the way we do it is by creating a gigaton threshold capacity for these technologies to be able to abate. And a gigaton is a billion tons of CO2 emissions and the discrepancy between what humanity produces in greenhouse gas emissions and what the earth can actually absorb is about 50 gigatons or so, depending on what sources you're getting your data from. And so every one of our technologies has to at least solve one out of 50th of that problem at full deployment. So we're dealing with the big stuff first, and we're dealing with the most potent greenhouse gases first, because not all greenhouse gases are the same. Some of them are 3,500 times more heat trapping than CO2. Some of them are 86 times more heat trapping than CO2, like methane. Some of them are 350 times more heat trapping than CO2. In fact, 1% of atmospheric greenhouse gases are responsible for 46% of the warming. So if we focus just on those molecules in the first half of the 21st century, we buy ourselves so much more time because we start slowing down and reversing the warming cycle. If we just focus strictly, let's say, on methane, it's a short-lived potent greenhouse gas. And in that short lifespan, it creates a lot of warming. And we have identified where in the economy it is being emitted, and we've identified technologies that can slow down and eventually stop and reverse those emissions of that greenhouse gas, where generally people are addressing climate change in some sort of haphazard fashion, where anything that has any contribution to climate change is being funded without any regard to the fact that this is a accelerating warming cycle and needs to be thought through from kind of an eccentric circle type. We solve these first, then the second set circle, then the third. And some people are funding circle number 18 while we still have one and two that are completely being ignored. So I think that's probably one of the advantages of being in the space for 20 years is you actually understand the nature of the problem so you can develop business models designed to solve for it instead of just feel like it solves for it. It's amazing because I've done work in this stuff, but I, I get to learn so much more just by talking to you. I think it's a good segue, Ibrahim, to like talk about full cycle. I think... I would love to just briefly, if you can share, you know, what you guys do. And I think you also, the way I see it, you also act as educators and advocates for the planet, not only through the work that you do, but also in the way you speak about things and you present yourself on a lot of different platforms and really speak to this problem. But I would love to, for you to chat a little bit about Full Cycle and how you've kind of made, if I'm not making an assumption, but you've kind of bridged those two gaps in a very cohesive and, and fitting way. Thank you. Um, so Full Cycle is a growth equity fund. And the reason why we chose growth equity versus, let's say, venture capital is because the biggest problems in climate change are, very, are systemic big pieces of hardware. And those are very capital intensive and they take a long time to commercialize. So what that means is, is like, you know, if you want to build an app, it may take you six months to two years to build it. 
And then once it's launched, if you have good you know, traction, you can download that app, I don't know, millions of times a minute around the world. Uh, if you build a consumer uh, widget or a consumer gadget, a physical object, it's it's not very capital. It's a lot more capital intensive than a piece of software, but it's a, you know it's still viable to get it in the hands of many people very quickly and commercialize it quickly. When you're dealing with infrastructure level technology, the big stuff in our economy, the food systems, the water systems, the energy systems, the transportation systems, the waste systems, that stuff takes sometimes two decades to even commercialize. And what I mean by commercialize is that this technology now, let's say it's an energy system of some kind that is going to replace you know, the fossil fuel energy system we're currently living on. Well, first you have to invent it. You have to build a prototype of it. That prototype is going to cost a lot of time and years and money to build. You perfect it. Then now you start funding for the demonstration plan so people can see that, hey, this works on demonstration scale. That takes sometimes two to three years to build tens of millions of dollars to uh, finance its build. It has to run for at least three years. You obviously have to tweak it, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have to find somebody to invest in your first commercial plant, which is usually over $100 million just for that first commercial plant. And there's nobody to fund the first commercial plant because infrastructure funds want to be first in line to fund the third plant. And venture funds don't want to invest in something that costs $100 million because the company itself, the you know usually's valuation isn't even is going to be crushed by having this cost on their books. So there's this like no man's land where technology often goes to die. And we build the bridge towards getting these commercialized technologies to become standard torchbearers for their respective verticals so they can have a global rollout as fast as possible. We also only invest in technology that is already proven because we just don't have time to wait a decade or two till we figure out if this is going to be commercially viable or not. Unfortunately, we're already kind of 40 years late to the problem. So we just pick technologies that are already proven and then expedite their rollout worldwide. The way I relate to it is, and by the way, there is a place for venture. Not all technologies have been invented. You know, 80% have, but there's 20% that we still need solutions to. So there's a place for venture and climate tech. But in general, if we're generalizing, the analogy I give is that if your house is on fire, you don't go invent firefighting technology. It's already too late. You know, if you're, the fire's in your backyard, it's time to use existing technology that we know works, like buckets and hoses. So you just have to roll out as many of them as you can, as fast as you can, put out the fire. And that's what we're trying to do. And we're doing it in a way that produces a very favorable risk-adjusted return for investors. We're not asking anybody to invest under the notion that they're going to have to take concessionary returns or undue risk. We actually make it very favorable for everybody because there's nothing wrong with modeling win-win-win situations. In fact, I'm surprised that this is a, a novel concept. It just takes a little bit more work and creativity to do as opposed to just chasing the easiest money. And I think really laziness is the inertia of laziness really is a problem that no one talks about. 
We are much more creative and much smarter than we give ourselves credit for. And we just have to care enough to do that because the outcome, if the outcome is not just profit, if the outcome is yes, profit and solve real problems in a prioritized fashion, then we'll just like take an extra minute and solve for both. It's not that complex. You know, we don't have to, you know, run with the first idea that comes to mind that just generates profit. We can, we, we can actually sit there and examine the idea and go, this is a good idea, but actually it solves one problem and causes 20 others. So let's take another, another minute and find a better idea and work on that one. All right. 100%. Like within impact investing, it's not also, if you look at, at it in that way, but it's, it's never also just like, like make an impact and forget the profit because also if you think about the longevity of a company or like of a solution being applied the profit is what keeps it going at the same time so there's you know it's that win-win should come hand in hand so completely i'm with you there actually just when you and i were prepping you mentioned hype cycles and we chatted a bit about that and i think it kind of fits very well what you're saying but like could you say that there's good and bad to them like what do you make of them or is like are we just losing sight just because of what's like the newest hype cycle kind of thing? I think hype cycles happen because we live in these social bubbles. And sometimes when we see this everywhere, right? Like where somebody who lives in any sort of bubble thinks that bubble represents the world. So, you know, so let's say funders, whether they're institutional or non-institutional funders, they live in a certain strata of society where they basically spend all their time with each other and people like them. So the stuff they talk about, they think is representative of the whole picture, but it's really representative of just whatever that subset of society and intelligentsia and, you know, and technology is being talked about in that moment. So that creates a illusion that this is everything that's happening in the space. And then everybody just piles on to whatever it is that seems to be inside of that bubble. And that is a very blinding phenomena. And we all are lesser for it because, and now thankfully that we have this solution to break free of that, which is the uh, diversity, um, I can't remember the acronym, diversity, inclusion, and... DEI. Yeah. Equity and inclusion. Yeah. Where we're forcing our companies, our think tanks, our social circles to include examples of different members of our society at large, such that we're getting so much more feedback about what's happening in the world so we can be outside of our little socioeconomic or industry bubbles and have a better way to deploy our capital, deploy our Uh, sweat equity into things that are more wholesome because they're reflective of a much broader understanding of the problems we're trying to solve instead of just whatever happens to be the flavor of the month that everybody is talking about inside of the legacy circles. And of course, it creates like huge valuations because all the money's piling into a, a small subset of technologies. The, you know, it creates bursting bubbles because Oh my God, nobody questioned why this technology is, you know, no good to begin with. How did this happen? Well, how it happened is because like nobody stopped and actually did a proper understanding of what this thing is that everybody's just lining up behind to throw money at. 
to the detriment of a lot of good things that were starved of capital because they were not talked about inside of those bubbles. But Ames, do you think do you think these things are a result of lack of communication? I mean, there's definitely an education gap somewhere. What's a way to learn or a way to kind of, I know it's a big, big question, but what's a way to solve for that? I mean, I think it's already starting, which is expose ourselves to more people from different worlds reflective of society, not just our golf buddies or our, you know, whatever tech community it is or whatever is happening currently in San Francisco that people, you know, or whatever. Like It's like it has to be a broader understanding of where we like where we're getting input from a w- much wider audience than we currently are. I just want to close this with one of the questions we love to ask at the end. And it's we on this podcast and and with the work that we do, at least at the studio, we talk a lot about leading with kindness and how kindness should really be at the center of everything. And I think you've exhibited that through just the way that you speak and and your passions just in general and your awareness. But uh, if I can ask this random question, what's an act of kindness that you recently received or gave or, you know, put forward? I have a friend of mine who is being bullied by her ex-husband in their divorce proceedings. And for some reason, like she never, like all she needed was a little bit of money to hire some attorneys to just go get her rights. And it just coincidentally, I bumped into her, you know, in a very tender moment of, you know, fear and frustration. I was like, what's going on? And it took everything to just have her say that she was in this predicament. And I was so honored just to be able to help her and just like, to just go get her like basic rights for her and her daughter, like just not to be bullied because of a discrepancy between her and her soon-to-be ex-husband's income level. And what a disgusting way to act towards anybody, let alone somebody who shared decades of life with you and, you know, had children and family with. So I was so honored to be able to make a small dent in the trajectory of that behavior such that it has a better, more equitable outcome. And thankfully, she is such a talented artist that out of the blue, I got one of the most inspiring paintings that showed up to my apartment that every day reminds me of the infinite possibility of human potential and how whatever is whatever I'm confronted with that seems impossible always like when I look at that painting, I remember that We are that big and that powerful. And then I take another second and suddenly what felt impossible a minute ago not only seems possible today, but the solution for becomes very quickly evident. And time and time again, that's the path that has been occurring for me every time I look at that painting. So it's been transformative. So a little kindness circle emerged just because people choose to show up for each other and love each other. Easy. I love it. It's bringing it down to the simplest and most honest uh, kind of form. Brahim, I can't 
thank you enough for sharing your thoughts, your wisdom, your story with us. Um, I always leave inspired after chatting with you and I'm truly honored that you, you wanted to join us on this podcast. So thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye everyone. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode with Brahim and Husseini. You can learn more about Brahim on his LinkedIn and Twitter and on Full Cycle's website. I encourage you to check it out and learn more about his work at length. To learn more about Le Studio, you know where to find us, on our socials at lestudio.io on LinkedIn and Instagram, as well as on our website. Stay tuned for our next episode. We've got so many more cool conversations and exciting people joining us that are doing just amazing and inspiring things. So thank you so much and see you next time.